Welcome to Pitch It To Me Podcast, a show about the subjective past, present, and potential future of flesh and blood design, where we're consistently bringing you the best flesh and blood podcast on the market. User experience may vary. On Red Pitch, Clark will opine about the eternal struggle that trading card game players face every time they sit down to play. On Yellow Pitch, Fuzzy will go over the ways that variance is handled in the fundamental design of the game. On Blue Pitch, Joel will give you some tips for how you can make choices that increase consistency and variance. You can find us across all socials, such as TikTok and Instagram, at Pitch It To Me Podcasts. With a cruel mistress, her soft velvety hands caressing you as you draw the most cracked hand in the world to take the tempo, only to suddenly strike you across your face as you draw four blues in the very next turn. Say, ah, la vie. <laughs> that worked way better than <laughs> that. was crazy. Hello? That worked way better than I, I looked up and I didn't see fuzzy. I just saw an 1840s French maiden <laughs> He was smoking a cigarette to pop a bridge in the middle of the night. It was ass a fucking... That's crazy. I'm in the wrong career. No stutter whatsoever. Just fucking nailed it. Kept the accent up, too. For, yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. That was crazy. Thank God we don't have any listeners in France. <laughs> I want to shout out my dad for listening to our podcast. He doesn't play Flesh and Blood, but he loves me. So he listened to a few episodes and he might listen to more. So... Papa Delp, if you're watching, <laughs> I love you too. That's sweet. That's sweet as hell. I don't have any special shout outs. I don't think any of my, I mean, my brother listens because he mixes the podcast every week. He doesn't like, have to listen to mix it. <laughs> I mean, he, I think he does. Cause like every so often he'll text me about it. So you know uh, what? He listens by choice. Chris, thank you. He's a real one. He is, honestly. Our podcast episode today is about variance and consistency. And in order to perfectly frame the subject of variance and consistency, I'm going to hand things off to Clark for Red Pitch. He's going to talk about the omnipresent chaos of card games. Yes. So for Red Pitch today, I want to talk about how card games are very capricious. They're just, they're so random inherently by nature. Like it is a random thing in in Flesh and Blood, uh, ever since Gregorian Tome did his video on fighting games, I think, and even a little bit before that, people love the fighting game analogy sure. for Flesh and Blood. Yes. But fighting games, you can control every single thing that you do at every point in the game. That's true. You cannot do that in Flesh and Blood. As much as you want to. Yeah. you. I, but it's crazy because Flesh and Blood is one of the lowest variance card games, but it's still a card game you still need to draw random cards from your deck to play the game. And because of that, there is always going to be variance in every single game. And so I wanted to talk about that element of variance and consistency. Because you're never going to escape it. It's, it's going to happen. And I think a lot of players maybe have a different frame of reference. When they come to Flesh and Blood, they come from some other game that felt higher variance. And so they go, well, I love Flesh and Blood. It's such a low variance game. But I still find myself having the same feelings in a game mm. of Flesh and Blood when I draw four reds as I did in Magic when I was mana droughted. Sometimes I even feel worse about it because when I play Flesh and Blood, I'm thinking, oh, this game is super consistent. This shouldn't be happening to me. Mm. Well, in Magic the Gathering, it's like, yeah, sometimes you just get seven lands, buddy. Sometimes you just rip nothing but lands off the top, and you're used to it. Because you expect it, you feel better about it. I feel like I'm going to give you a counterpoint, and then a counterpoint to that counterpoint. <laughs> in Magic, if you, Magic the Gathering, if you start the game with seven lands in your hand, you do have a mulligan, but like a mulligan feels bad in its own way, right? So mm -hmm. let's just say like you are not able to find lands in your opening hand, despite mulliganing, whatever. And you lose that game because you aren't able to play much of anything, right? You're so out of the game, you're not able to get a foothold, and you lose. And that sucks. Um, it's a little bit tempered by the best of three aspect, where you're not running, ruining your entire match, you're just ruining one game. 
in Flesh and Blood, when you draw a bad hand, you can block out with it and it's just one bad hand. You're not ruining your entire game, except Flesh and Blood can be really tight because these games can be so close. Every game of Flesh and Blood can feel very close. And when you have one bad hand, that's the one that you're gonna look back at and you're gonna be like, man, I lost with, and he had one life. If I had one better hand, I probably could have taken it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot more in the game that goes on than that. Often like a lot of different things would have changed if you had drawn a better hand at that point. Like they would have played more defensively and maybe they could have played defensively and came back. But um, it can feel really punishing because it's a best of one format and every hand feels like it matters so much in Flesh and Blood. Yeah, seeing less of the or seeing less variance in a game can also make you pigeonhole on the few instances where variance like really screwed you out of a game mm-hmm. or like created so many like different paths of decision making that there's so many wrong ones and you're more likely to choose the wrong one or a wrong one and get punished for it. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately that sort of that leads really well into like my main point which is we have a really hard time as humans dealing with probabilities. Um, if you guys don't actually know, I was a math tutor, specifically a statistics tutor, for multiple years while I was, that was my job up through college. It's also a job that Fuzzy did as well. So we've like talked a lot about statistics and probabilities. The hardest chapter in statistics was probabilities. Like that's the one I always saw the most students struggling with. And even students who were very good at math always struggled with probabilities, I think because our brains are so, it's not designed for it. Sure. I've always said uh, to my students that the human brain is designed for lines, not numbers. Like we are designed to understand spaces, not numerical representations of things. And so reality often doesn't make sense when it comes to things like probabilities. Um, and I just want to remind everyone that like, as long as there are four red cards in your deck that you don't know where they are, you can draw four red cards or blues or blues. Like, unless you know for a fact what your pitch stack looks like, and that is the rest of your deck, there is a chance that you draw bad hands. And that is always going to be present in every single game. Um... There is a really fascinating experience, actually, that happened when in the trading card game world that I want to talk about here, which is when Magic Arena came out. So when Magic Arena came out, it was probably one of the biggest online card game playing platforms, I feel like. Definitely a big deal. And so a lot of people will say that it mana screws you or mana droughts you way more often than Mm. IRL play. I haven't heard that before. And I've heard similar things about Talishar actually. Mm -hmm. Like Talishar will roll you way more sixes and way more ones than in real life. But the thing is, is that they're using actual real random number generators. No, it isn't. There is no skew in Talishar or Magic Arena for these things. They That's are using... actually not true. In Magic Arena, when you're playing a best of one format. Oh, I did forget that they added that. Yeah, it'll actually get, draw two hands and it'll present to you the one where you had a better balance of lands versus cards. So you're less likely to draw an all seven hand of all lands or all non-land cards. Because Magic Arena does actually like, it favors you. Mm-hmm. It gives you slightly better draws than you normally would. And yet colloquially, when you look online, people will still talk about be like getting more mana flood or mana drought based off of these things. It's led to conversations like, should we be changing shuffling rules to make sure that like these cards are actually random Mm -hmm. stuff like that? Cause if you think about it, we're not doing like casino level random shuffles. Sure. We're doing push shuffles most of the time, sometimes pile shuffles. These are not the most accurate ways of shuffling a deck to make it properly random. Sure. Mm -hmm. And are those even like optimized for 60 card decks? What about 65 card decks, 70 card decks that we can end up with in flesh and blood, right? Like, it's so weird that the variance is both very high and also not perfectly random in these ways. Yeah, we, we like to think of our shuffling as being random, 
but really it's just random enough, you know? Mm. I've heard when I first started, I was, <clears throat> or when I first started card games in general, I didn't know how to uh, shuffle properly. And this is something I've gone with like new players who are new to TCGs as well. They just don't know how to, like they'll power shuffle or pile shuffle, excuse me. Or they'll just kind of like do this number. Uh, I don't know how to. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's the, it's for me, I was introduced to that shuffle as the Yu-Gi-Oh shuffle. Cause it's what <laughs> they would do in the Yu-Gi-Oh anime. Oh. <laughs> they would take them, they would cut out the middle of the deck and then they would play essentially small cuts of that larger portion on top of their other hand. Yeah, that's a really good way of explaining it. Uh, Not great, but... <laughs> well, it, it's better than what I had in mind, because I was just doing a hand motion and I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah. So, with that in mind, I've I've heard, like, you have to shuffle a minimum of, like, seven or ten times, like, taking, or, like, splitting it in half and, like, uh, combining them together, making sure that, you know, it's kind of evenly distributed across the piles. Seven to ten of those, like, make it like more random than just like one or two and there's still like really good uh chunks of power cards with blues or or whatever the case may be like i don't i seriously doubt there's a lot of uh stacking going on Mm -hmm. in in flesh and blood but that can happen you know especially if you are drawing four cards a turn like eventually you're gonna have like these big clumps so i've heard seven or ten is the magic number yeah but like we've just heard that right Mm -hmm. versus what what the reality of what we think things should be, what we hear, and then what the actual probabilities show are so wildly different sometimes. Like, have you guys heard of the Monty Hall problem? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm familiar. Fuzzy, do you want to explain the Monty Hall problem? Okay, I'm going to do my best. I feel like you do a very good job of it. If you can hear this, it means that Fuzzy, while editing, took the Monty Hall problem and put it at the very end of the episode after the credits. If you want, <laughs> if you want to hear our explanation of the Monty Hall problem, you can either wait till the end or skip over to the end and hear Fuzzy describe it. Or you can pause right now and look it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> One of the two. All right, back to our episode. <laughs> A lot of the times, people will get very upset about the Monty Hall problem. <laughs> mm. Like, they'll either get, either statisticians will get pissed off that people, like, don't understand the reality of the probability, or people will be like, no, that's dumb and wrong, it's 50-50. And people will get very emotional about it. Mm. And if you've ever played at a Flesh and Blood event, you've probably seen people get very emotional about things not going their way, the car, the hands not working out. So... I think that's something that every flesh and blood player is going to have to struggle with, is going to have to manage. How do you behave when you have shit luck? It's a great question. And it's something that like we all kind of need to be thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to use the word responsibility because we're all just trading card players. And if you enjoy the game or don't enjoy aspects of the game, that's entirely your prerogative. I'm not going to say you have to have the emotional labor of handling variants, but I do kind of feel like it's almost something you have the responsibility for. Because you can't put that on your opponent every single time. Absolutely. We've also sat across the table from people who have gotten really pissed off because Mm -hmm. I happen to have a good hand why is that my responsibility? I drew good, and you're getting pissed at me about it? Bro, I didn't do anything. Yeah. I shuffled, I drew, I played the hands that I drew, but you're upset about it, and I don't want you to be upset, Fuzzy, because you're my friend, and I love you, and I want you to keep playing, I want you to keep showing up to armories, I enjoy your company. Right. But when you're getting upset because I got lucky, I'm now at least somewhat responsible for that as the person sitting across the table from you. Mm. So we should be thinking about how can we manage our own emotions to not put that onto our fellow flesh and blood players. So that speaks to two interesting points. Number one, just like the emotional maturity of players, I think in flesh and blood as a whole, there's a lot less of that than what I've experienced in other trading card games with more variants. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like, the more variance a game, the more people that are attracted to it that don't have that same level of maturity, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Are you uh, saying that people complain about variance more in high variance games? Yes. Okay. Because they 
they kind of use it to their advantage and then they're just going to be more affected by it, I guess, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Whereas in Flesh and Blood, because it's on a lower scale and if you play a lot of games, like especially these pro players, like you'll see their mental state like unfazed by these mm -hmm. stupid turns and still win because they just buckle down like, okay, he had they a good don't tilt. They, they got don't great tilt at mental. All. Right. So if you play thousands of games, like probably 10% or more are going to be insane and those are just at the outliers and yeah. as a regular player as a casual player you might go against these insane draws like man you're just going to feel a lot differently about it than the average pro player would because mm -hmm. you don't see the regular games as often yeah. one way to impact your mental ability to affect these things is to change your mindset mm -hmm. and thinking long term or thinking about moments when the variance went another way is a very good way of doing that sure. right thinking if you are so focused on that one bad hand that you drew that game think about well what was a very good hand that i drew that game sure and mm. it'll help emotionally balance you sure you may also view things maybe a little inconsistently with your deck like maybe you do need to be thinking oh is my deck too high variance is it a... so like mm -hmm. uh, there's still a little bit of be careful not to get in the way of your objective accuracy. Mm -hmm. But in terms of managing emotion, just automatically thinking of a counter to what you're thinking is a is a good way of managing it. Clark, you're talking about how you can emotionally react to variance and by thinking more about variance. And mm -hmm. I 100% stand by everything you said. But as an alternative, I also want to mention, you can also just focus on the things that were in your control. Mm. Focus on the plays that you could have made. Yes, I just lost this game when I drew a bad hand and they were at one life. Was there maybe somewhere else in the game I could have squeezed out a point of value that was in my control? That way I could have won the game before I drew into this bad hand. And I think that's what a lot of pro players get mm -hmm. their reputation for. They focus on what's in their control. And things are in your control might be making deck choices that lead to you having these low rolls less often, or putting cards in your deck that are specifically for this matchup. Things that you can do before the game starts, as well as things that you can do during the game. Lines of play, etc. Mm -hmm. Choosing to block instead of play a card. <coughs> Expand, expanding your mindset outside of that one turn, I think is a great strategy. Think about, could I have, how, can I change my strategy on turn zero and turn five, so that when I draw a super bad hand on turn 12, it doesn't mean as much. Exactly. I think that's a great point because Flesh and Blood, more so than any other TCG that exists right now, has more opportunities for you to look back and this micro decision makes a huge impact later on. It's just like a domino effect. And there's so many of those you can find and discover just waiting for you in the game. That's part mm -hmm. of why we love the game so much. Right. Mm -hmm. And I want to specify on the word focus. Focus on the things that are in your control. Focus on the decisions you can make. Focus on what you like about the game. If we, if you like that word focus, you could say that any time you spend too much time thinking about how luck screwed you over, that is a distraction. A mm -hmm. distraction from the things that you like about the game. A distraction from you being able to make better choices and improve. And if you think about bad luck as a distraction, it might be able to help you focus in the future and because mm. I don't want you to mm. get gotten I don't want you to <laughs> don't get got I don't want lady luck to come over here and distract you from being a good healthy player mm -hmm. love that uh the final thing that I'm going to to say about this is that I do kind of want to return to that like how do we behave mm -hmm. let's take this moment to actually reflect L listeners and us here recording today mm -hmm. to, let's take a moment and reflect on how can we behave better when faced with these moments? I think so much about improving your behavior is actually being able to think about it when you're in an emotionally stable state before you reach the actual emotional state. Mm. Oh, we're getting deep therapy today, boys. <laughs> I'm a psych major. I'm going to do it. <laughs> so think about it now. Think about it when you have downtime. Think about it as you're driving to your armory. Hey, when things go wrong, what do I want to do? What do I think is the right thing to do? And also think about what is the right thing to do when you are looking at a player across the table who is having that hard time, mm -hmm. right? Chastising them is probably not going to help. <laughs> Telling them that, they're, that they shouldn't be emotional about it is probably not going to help. Um, I have noticed that I've done a lot better at managing my emotions in Flesh and Blood because there are 
very nice people sitting across the table from me mm-hmm. who will commiserate like, yeah, that hand was super rough, man. Like you lost the tempo and then that just led to a snowball and you just lost the game. I'm sorry that that happened to you. And that helps so much rather than Lamau get good. Yeah. Lamau get good while correct. (laughs) Doesn't help the situation that the person is currently in. They can think about how to get good later. Mm. Um, Focus on your community. If you are playing a high variance hero and you're losing a lot, or if you're just having bad armories week after week after week, Talking about improving is nice because you think, oh, I get to win more. But guess what? Someone's going to go 0-4 yeah. at your mm-hmm. armory. You might be that person. When you are that person, try to get something out of the game that isn't the victory. That isn't the, like, super good game. Mm-hmm. If you are getting value out of going to your card shop and talking to friends and doing trades and having fun, I think that it will bother you less when those big moments of variance happen. That was beautiful. The community, man. It's about the community. It's about the people that we're playing with. The cards are secondary in my personal opinion. Yeah, I've said similar things and I 100% agree with that sentiment. And I'll, I'll, I'm already thinking of like ways I can use that advice too. Cause I, I have the tendency to roll scabs or do a risky play with too many misses in graveyard for my deck or whatever and get punished for it. And then I can see how it would sour the experience for the other people. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's something that we can all improve on. So now that we've talked about our capricious mistress of variants, uh, Fuzzy, can you talk about how... I'm going to hand it off to Fuzzy for our yellow pitch. So I wanted to talk in yellow pitch today about the decisions that Legend Story Studios has made to reduce variants in their game and maybe talk a little bit about how they allow or increased variants compared to other trading card games. To start off with, I think the most obvious one is the resource system. Coming from Magic the Gathering, you had cards that were lands and cards that were not lands, and you (laughs) needed the lands in order to play the not lands. And if you drew all of one type, uh (laughs) (laughs) uh-oh. In a game like Hearthstone, at least when it comes to their resource system, is much less variance, because in Hearthstone, you always get your resource every turn. Mm-hmm. Turn one, you have one resource. Turn five, you have five resources. You can rely on that. Hearthstone has less variance than Magic the Gathering in that sense. In this game, Flesh and Blood, the resource system is baked into the cards, and you don't need to rely on drawing expensive cards late in the game and cheap cards early in the game because it all depends on what else you draw. So this can have a lot of variance to it. If I draw like an expensive card and all reds, I can't cast the expensive card. If I draw all blues and zero cost cards, like zero cost blues, I don't really have a use for the blues, so I can't get a whole lot of value out of them. Because each card can be used in multiple ways, I would say it has lower variance because you always have something to be able to play or block. Mm -hmm. Do you guys agree? I do agree. I really agree with that last point. I almost take, not issue, but I almost disagree with the fact that the resource system is what reduces the variance. Okay. I feel like that's almost higher variance than something like Hearthstone or Legends of Runeterra, where the resources are this very consistent crawl up because it's going to be the exact same way every single game. I think I agree with that, except like in Hearthstone or Legends of Runeterra, on the first turn, after mulligans, you can sometimes wind up with really expensive cards and nothing to play. In those games, you have cards that are really expensive that you don't want to draw early, and you don't want to draw the cheap cards late game, unless they're really good cheap cards that are flexible, but it leads to a higher variance game because you're still dependent very much on those single card draws and hoping that it's relevant to that situation. I suppose. I still feel like it's more consistent because you literally gain one mana every single turn. Sure. And that feels more consistent to me. Sure. Um, definitely less agency. Yes. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. Like, it's more consistent in that it's built into the game and you have no control over it, so eventually you're going to have enough mana. The issues lie with what you draw as you're building up that mana. Like, if you draw a bunch of cheap stuff, then you're never going to be able to make full use of the, like, mid-game, I guess, because mm-hmm. you have these cheap spells. Whereas Flesh and Blood, it combines the fact that you're always going to have some type of resource in hand and that you have a lot of agency over what you do with it. 
And you can even go over what, like, let's say you compare it to Hearthstone. On the first turn, you can have access to a lot of resources to do a big spell or big card. And in the mid game, maybe you want to trim down your hand, block a little bit more and focus on these smaller stuff. And you have that agency, I think, is what makes it more consistent than just saying, oh, yeah, Hearthstone gives you mana every turn and therefore is the most consistent game. Like, that's technically true, but in practice, it's way different. In my yeah. Opinion. Uh, for me, I would say Flesh and Blood is the drawing at end of turn and always mm. drawing a new hand every single turn. Mm. That that is what is the main driving thing that increases its consistency above every other card game. Mm-hmm. Sure. And drawing drawing four cards. Like, yeah. always drawing a brand new hand. Like, in these other card games that we mentioned, there's one draw every single turn, and that is higher variance than drawing four cards. Yeah. Because drawing four cards, there's a higher chance of you getting a playable card. Mm-hmm. And because they're multiple, there's consistency in that too, right? Mm-hmm. Any variance card to card is going to be reduced when you draw four of them at the same time. Mm-hmm. But that's also that consistency is mitigated by the fact that you only have one card in your arsenal by default that allows you to carry over any momentum from the last turn. Yeah. Like if I have four cards that don't work very well in magic on their own, like with magic, you have a board state and you draw cards into the context that you set up previously. And that can help with the variance. Like if I have something that like a creature, when I attack with it, I discard a card and draw a new one. That helps with my variance because I can use the context on the board to improve future draws. And Flesh and Blood doesn't have that as much. You're really just stuck with whatever you draw other than having your arsenal down. Which is why like in Briar, it would be a really good play to leave a Ravenous Rabble in your arsenal because you can always, if you draw nothing but pumps, you can pump the Ravenous Rabble. Or if you want to be able to swing with Rosetta Thorn, having one attack is a lot better than having zero. You can't have zero if you leave one in Arsenal. Mm -hmm. And drawing at the end of turn, like you were saying, Clark, it allows you to look at all of your options and decide whether you're blocking or playing cards at the beginning of your turn cycle, in a way, Mm -hmm. and make all those decisions at the front so you can see it all play out in front of you instead of like relying on what your opponent does after. Yeah. I also really like that you brought up the arsenal of creating turn-to-turn consistency because mm-hmm. that is something I've noticed about Flesh and Blood. Like, when Viscerite doesn't work, it's because I was running well and then I drew a bad hand and I lost all my tempo. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to gain that tempo back without sacrificing something. Equipment, health, whatever. Um, but with Arsenal, you're able to increase that consistency turn by turn by turn and try to keep it rolling together, but you still have to make a sacrifice of not playing all four cards that you drew. You need to always leave one back. I want to talk a little bit more about how cards can be used in multiple different ways. They can be pitched, played, or blocked by default, Mm -hmm. with some exceptions, of course. And I think that can lead to consistency in your game plan. Because if I block with, like, Command and Conquer, versus if I block with, like, Sift. (laughs) Both of these cards block for three. One of these doesn't cost anything. The other costs $80, but both of them block for three. And when you have that block three mode on lots of your cards, your game plan can be really consistent, and the way that you interface with your opponent can be consistent because you have a lot of different cards that basically do the exact same thing, blocking for three. Or you have a bunch of blues in your deck that all pitch for the exact same amount. And until you see them second cycle, in a way, the difference of like what text is actually printed on that card has not affected that game at all if you're pitching it. I mean, it might affect your decisions and such. Like, I pitched the card that has worse text, but the actual text on that card hasn't had a direct impact on the game. Wouldn't you guys mm-hmm. agree? Hmm. So when you pitch a card or when you block with a card, the text on it has not actually mattered yet. And in a way, that improves the consistency because so many cards are doing these... like for lack of a better word, generic interactions within the game. I agree up until you get into these slower matchups with which... With pitch stacking. Yeah, with... Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, with pitch stacking, yeah. I think that's where it gets... Or where the text means a lot more because... It can matter again. I may want this later on for a Mm -hmm. specific uh, turn-by-turn cycle, but... Mm -hmm. It gets another opportunity to have a direct impact on the game. Mm -hmm. But even then, it might not. If I have a blue that I pitch first and then I block with second cycle, the text still hasn't mattered directly. Mm -hmm. But all of them have the opportunity to. 
And I think that actually can increase game-to-game variance when I have one game where I blocked with my Command & Conquer and another game where I swung with it. Now this Command & Conquer has done two completely different things in two different games, and that makes every game of Flesh & Blood feel unique. That's kind of why we want variance in games, right? Mm -hmm. Variance makes game-to-games feel very different. You want it to go differently every time you sit down to play. That's the whole point of a trading card game, right? So true. One thing that I think really increases the consistency of your games is how you start with equipment on the board. Flesh and Blood doesn't really have a board state outside of your equipment, and that board state is there at the beginning every game. It's there because you chose for it to be there. There's no card right now that's like, you start the game with a random equipment, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And imagine if you were playing Magic the Gathering and you just got to pick a two drop to start on the board every game. Oh my God. That'd be absurd. It would get a little degenerate, right? Mm-hmm. I'd get so degenerate. And in Flesh and Blood, it kind of is. <laughs> Lexi gets to start with New Horizons on That's the board. That's true. She should have to draw and play it. <laughs> Voltaire, they just always have access to Voltaire every game all the time. <laughs> like, this equipment provides so much strength and consistency to your game plan. And it's why some games of Flesh and Blood can feel really similar all the time. And it's something that definitely works in Flesh and Blood. I'm not actually complaining about it. I love the equipment, and it allows you a lot of skill expression in your deck building and how you use this equipment. I get the most value out of it. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to draw that comparison of, like, we do have a little bit of a board state. It's sitting right there, ready for us to use whenever. Sometimes it's stuff that helps, like, every turn, like making a seismic surge every turn or getting a third of a resource with, with Tunic. Flesh and Blood allows you to have up to three copies of a card in your deck, in Classic Constructed, and two of in Blitz. I would actually say this number is fairly low. In Magic the Gathering, you can have four of a card for your 60-card deck. In Yu-Gi-Oh!, for, which is a 40-card deck game, you can have up to three copies of that card. Ratio-wise, that's a lot more consistent than Flesh and Blood, where that Majestic, you have to find one of your three copies in order to pull it. It makes up for the fact that you're drawing four cards every turn, and in Flesh and Blood, you often do see your entire deck in a game, or a large portion of your deck through the game, compared to Magic, where I'd probably say the average is maybe half your deck, with lots of give and take there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even even that. I would be like, wow, that was a nice, grindy game. <laughs> yeah. I saw most of the cards that I chose I saw to put the, in my deck. I saw the top 20 cards in my deck. That was a doozy. <laughs> yeah, when you see the top 20 cards and you still don't draw your like, four of insane crack card that your deck is built around, you can be like, this game was fucking bullshit. Mm-hmm. So in Flesh and Blood, you have fewer copies of each card to increase variance, but you see more of your deck, which I would say increases consistency. You get to, you have a much higher chance of seeing any card that you put in your deck. Mm-hmm. Although, there's a little asterisk there, <laughs> because for a Majestic, you literally only get to see three copies of that card, but for Commons, that could actually be like six or nine copies of that card. They're just in different colors. Yeah, I, I mean, Mavri and Skies, I think, is the perfect example for Rune Blades. Mm-hmm. We want to give our cards go again. And we want to play non-attack action cards. Wait a minute. This does both? (laughs) Even in blue. Even in blue. So you can run all nine copies because you want nine copies of something that gives your Runeblade cards go again. Mm -hmm. And that improves the consistency of Viscerai because nine of your cards in your deck do almost the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like the design too. If the effect really matters to you, then you get to run those full nine copies, right? So whether that's give an attack action card go again or like go tutor out a minnowism with your belittle, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you want to run nine of those because that effect is so strong that you want to see it very, very regularly. And that's what makes it so powerful. And when we talk about seeing your entire deck, right? Mm-hmm. In some games, maybe most of your games, if you really dedicate yourself to this plan, you can pitch stack your deck. So like the whole idea of trading card games is the cards you draw is random, right? That's like, feels like the whole premise is, look, you can pick what cards you might draw, but you don't know what order you'll draw them. You don't know when you're gonna draw them. But at a certain point in Flesh and Blood, even that goes out the window and you can start drawing cards that you pitched and put there and you did decide the order, intentionally or not, <laughs> whether you've been paying attention to it. You decided the order of the cards that you drew. 
even that gets less random and it starts to be everything is potentially inside the control or at least awareness of the players and it, it the game stops being random at all and it continues to be such an amazing analogy of like a real fight mm-hmm. because number one you start out at your healthiest your strongest at the beginning of a fight you have all your armor like assuming it gets knocked off or broken in combat right and the more time or the longer the fight goes on you start to learn your opponent okay I know what he's going to do. I know what I'm going to do. And then so the more the longer the game goes on in a flesh and blood game, the more information you have about wh- what decks, what cards are left in their deck and what cards are left in your deck. And mm-hmm. then you kind of figure out, okay, I need to like parry this attack or dodge this attack and then go in with this one to finish off or, or, or whatever. It's just there's so much flavor there. It's really appealing to me, like the pitch tagging aspect. And that's how flesh and blood feels like a much more consistent game. Do you two think there are any ways that Flesh and Blood particularly increases variance that I have maybe missed? I think there's higher variance in Limited for okay. Flesh and Blood oh, than other card games. Definitely. Interesting. You really want to find certain cards in booster packs, and you just might not. Uh, I say again a bit about the Monarch Draft that we ran. I mentioned this in the, in the Nationals episode. We did a practice draft to prepare for Nationals. I didn't get my hooves as Levia, but three Prisms got their entire perfect suite. I think Monarch especially is a high-variance draft. Um, yeah. I call it swingy. I think that's mm-hmm. a good word for it. Mm-hmm. Or like Soul Reaping versus Soul Harvest, right? Like, are there enough Soul Reapings to go around for the chain players? Mm-hmm. There's there's variance in that, too. Of yeah. Just what ends up being in your pool. And you're like, well, I'm the one person in Levia. Oh, but there aren't any good Levia cards in the packs. Or like how much it matters that other people are in your same heroes. Yeah. Whereas like with Magic, you can have other people in the same colors, and it's not that big of a deal because you have two colors. But like in Flesh and Blood, you're almost at the whim of what the other players decide to draft. You mm. can send signals perfectly, and they just completely ignore them. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's time for us to go on to Blue Pitch. Joel, what do you got for us for Blue Pitch? Okay, so we've talked a lot about variance and consistency, how much one sucks and how much one is good. And we've talked about how we can't avoid it. That's true. So is there ever a point where you lean into variance or you try to dumb it down like down to the one percentile? Like, what would you say would be the, the correct decision? Is there ever a moment? <laughs> oh, like how much consistency versus how much variance in our decks? Yeah, like as a player or as a game designer? Ooh, because it's different, isn't it? I'm going to need more context. Because as a player, we want consistency, don't we? Mm -hmm. We want to be like, my deck does the same thing every single game. (laughs) But a game designer is like, people aren't going to play my game if it's the same. No, because it's so boring. (laughs) Exactly. Like we say that we want consistency, but we don't actually want consistency. It's like. I'm surprised you didn't bring that up in your section, Clark. What? I didn't even think about it. <laughs> this episode could have been longer, listeners. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's a big topic. Yeah, Fuzzy, you had a really good point in one of our previous episodes about why you chose Briar for your like competitive hero, which I really liked. So if you wanted to reiterate it. Yeah, um, it was basically the first hero that I ever chose to play competitively. Um, I never played competitive magic because I didn't think I was man enough because I literally was a teenager and I couldn't afford it. (laughs) And now now here, I do feel like I am an adult playing flesh and blood and I have this opportunity to get into the competitive scene for the first time in any game and I picked Briar as my first hero because I really like her ability to have explosive damage. She was a really solid hero at the time. And one thing about Briar is she has a high variance hero that I can get lucky and draw Chenomet Heroic and a bunch of zero-cost attacks, take the agency away from my opponent, and really myself as well. Because when I sit down against a player who is better than me, that basically means they're making better decisions. So I'm like, okay, neither of us are really making decisions here. I'm going to play Chenomet Heroic and a bunch of zero-cost attacks and win, Mm -hmm. just from the insane value there that I can luck into. Because luck can be something of an asset. But the downside to that is... I also have ch- turns where games where I don't draw it at all, right? Like, I leave myself open to drawing really badly because I'm making these deck building decisions to that could go in my favor sometimes. And I'm just hoping to get lucky and not find the downsides, not find the low rolls, so to speak. So that's how variance helped me as a competitive player. And eventually I got tired of it because I yeah. want to play a more <laughs> like agency hero in the future. But 
That was the idea. Now that you're good enough. <laughs> I like to think so. <laughs> and Clark, you had a similar point. I'm thinking I'm just going to steal it from you. Um, oh, no, yeah, I do. But you mentioned how when you're a new player or you have a bad deck that you really like, you can use variants to your advantage. Sometimes you can get so absurdly lucky, set up a huge cash in turn or some other power card and just blow the other person out of the water, even if they've made objectively smarter deck decisions or objectively better plays. Sometimes you just leak so much damage, it's impossible for them to come back. Not sex to suck, buddy. <laughs> I high rolled you. Yeah, and so I wanted to highlight those two examples because they really exemplify how you can use variants to your advantage. Because variance has a pretty bad, con a pretty negative connotation to it, rightfully so. But sometimes you can use it to your advantage. Even the way we're describing it, it's like the worst player won. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, and that's like if you are the worst player, it can be an asset. Mm -hmm. But if you're the skilled player and you're like, damn it, I fucking lost because he high rolled me. I shouldn't be losing this game. <laughs> but, but I also think that like it's cool because when it comes to playing, you can play for higher variants. Mm -hmm. You can make the plays that say, look, I know I'm going to be down in life, but I'm going to be chipping you down to my kill range. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So true. And then you can try to pivot later on and take the game away from somebody. And then also recognizing the opportunities for it. Recognizing right. when you should combo off. Maybe when you should slower play. Like, I think there's still a lot of skill for sure. in yeah. playing into variants. Right. So you can still get better. Right. You don't have to be like, I'm a bad player and I'm going to play the cheap strategy. Oh, don't let people tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you get the dub, you get the dub, buddy. You take that W and you go to the bank. Exactly. You get your packs. <laughs> so... At the beginning of this year, I had a terrible like ProQuest season because I tried so hard to lean into the variants. And I was like, man, why am I losing so bad? And my confidant at the time, uh, Del Taco, he was like, dude, you're playing. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend, not the restaurant. Right. The man, the myth, the legend. Excuse me. Let me, let me reiterate. That's a person. <laughs> the nicest asshole I've ever met. Yeah. Del Taco. Yeah. He was like, dude, you're playing the worst decks, not playing at all prior and leaning into a very very like the best people playing right now are playing non-variance heroes. So I was like, okay, let me switch it up. So I tr I made a lot of really good decisions on how to play better, how to deck build a little bit better. It got to where I am now, where I feel like I'm like definitely a contender at any event. I'm not like out from the get-go like I used to be. That being said, there are some th ways that you can increase consistency in your deck, help you understand the fundamentals of the game and then later on you can either make hero choices that are uh, skewed to be more consistent or you can try to use variants in unique ways to steal wins or steal like tier two events, whatever the case may mm -hmm. be. Starting off, what I really like about Flesh and Blood is the limited but very specific use tutors, uh, which means cards that can search for other cards at any given point. Yeah, uh, Cards like Lesson in the Lava, which I think says it's a one for three arcane and whatever damage you deal, you can search for a card, which is less than the amount you dealt and put on the top. And then there's cards like Mugenshi release, which on hit searches any number of Lord of wins from your deck. These are just ways to get exactly what you need at the time. And I think they're very unique. So if you're able to utilize these cards in one of your favorite heroes, do so. They take a lot out of the legwork of, Oh, I need to, I need this exact card or I need, I really need a spike turn right now these are ways to get closer to those turns. Tutors is a very powerful effect. We see that in like Magic the Gathering and like Commander specifically, how powerful tutors are because the larger your deck is, the more you just want to find what you need at any given point. So you can get your game off to a strong start instead of having to deal with the variance of drawing into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually straight up competitive Viscerai lists oftentimes run one of read the runes, only one read the runes, so that on turn zero, you can become the Arknight, find your read the runes, start the game with five rune chance. And then you never have to worry about drawing it when you need a go again card or an attack action. Yep. Nice. It's, it never makes the rest of your hands awkward ever because you get it out turn zero with your become the Arknight, mm -hmm. which yeah. is the best turn to play read the runes. Right. That's so really cool. Because mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like you have four of read the runes until you don't need them anymore. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. Thinking of it that way really, really dumbs down your variance in a deck. So I just wanted to bring that up. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it a little bit bef uh, already, but 
Finding your perfect ratio of pitch values in your deck is extremely important too. Like, ideally you want a lot of reds because it's going to give you the most offensive value and you want a good amount of blues to support paying for those reds throughout a turn so that off of one blue you can do several attacks or several activated abilities, whatever, whatever the case may be. But I've noticed in my own list, like playing with Via in this competitive season, I have like a 40-20-40 split where it's like I have a lot more yellows, blues, and reds. Mm-hmm. So it's a really good pitch curve, and all of my power cards are like in yellow. So if I'm not ready to use them yet, I pitch them away, and I find that flexibility to be really nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fuzzy, you already mentioned it, like having more yellows increases the flexibility and therefore the consistency of your deck. Mm-hmm. And that might be bad advice, but I'm going to keep giving it. (laughs) I also want to shout out uh, February here. There's a little tab on the deck builder titled Stats. Mm -hmm. When you go to Stats, it can show you how likely it is for you to end up with 0, 1, 2, 3, or 4 of any given color. Mm. So you can see what your probability distribution is for your deck of getting how many reds, how many blues. Uh, sometimes that's bad because you're like 0.17 chance of getting four reds. That'll <laughs> never happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, when you're drawing so many hands a game and then you're playing so many games, like those tiny chances add up to inevitability, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so just keep that in mind when you're when you're brewing. Like, there's always a non-zero chance of drawing four of the absolute worst case scenario. I get lazy. I'm like, <laughs> well, no matter what I do, I can still draw a bad hand, so <laughs> what am I doing trying to optimize? <laughs> I'm just not going to worry about the ratios. And I'm so glad you said that, Fuzzy, because that goes into my next point, which is having consistent costs in your deck. Like, you prop, like it's not a good idea to just shove a bunch of these tall attacks or these attacks with Gogan for zero. Like, I feel attacked. well you shouldn't because I've seen your list Uh, (laughs) just kidding I'm just kidding la burn (laughs) just kidding Joel Joel (laughs) like anything that costs above two is just disrespectful (laughs) in an aggro tag like what are you doing he needs to pitch his earth blues because like ice exists do you not understand (laughs) like when you build your deck, have a plan for like when you get discarded uh, from like a pummel effect or something, or if you get a frostbite, or if you're blocking the prior turn. Like if they have an insane turn on their hand, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. your dream hand is still probably worse. You may want to block to conserve life, and then still come out you with come at your opponent with your best two or three card hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what's lost on a lot of people. Like they're thinking about their best juiciest hand. I'm like that's gonna happen like maybe your first four turns and then you get below 20 or you get disrupted and you're like oh wait my deck sucks without the exact perfect five card hand yeah this is what i we're going to do an arachne episode eventually (laughs) i i'm like man i know exactly what i want my hand to look like when i have a zero cost attack when i have a one cost attack Mm -hmm. when i have a two cost attack Mm -hmm. when i have a zero and a one cost a zero and like if you know what you want your hand to look like and how to play a version of your hand with every single cost in your deck, with every single resource possibility in your deck, then you have a very good idea of what to do every single turn, and that's going to make you feel more consistent through the variance. Yeah, and that comes with reps, but I also think like paying attention to how often you're able to utilize your full hands like, mm-hmm. like, let's say, for instance, there's this really nice, like, three-cost attack or whatever, and you really like it, but it ends up being a block three most of the time. Like, across 10, 20, or 30 games, you might be like, this card kind of sucks. Maybe there's another three block that does or that's actually playable in more hands than not. So understanding, like, when to drop your pet cards or these more expensive attacks is also a good sign of discipline on your end as a deck builder drop your pet cards yep you gotta do it that's that's growing up baby i will run eradicate and you can't stop drop (laughs) Drop your pet cards yep no more meeps joel's laying down the hard facts today (laughs) these are lessons that i've had hammered into me already that i want to offload onto you as well so you Mm -hmm. grow more as a player my last way probably the most important way is as you get into the competitive scene 
Don't tech for everything. <laughs> that's that's targeted. At <laughs> oh, me. that was the one. Okay. That's when you. That's when you turned your phasers towards Fuzzy and you went, <laughs> and you and you pointed them at me. Because it's so easy to do. Like you. Bro, want, I want to plan for everything. Yeah, you'd love to win every matchup because of the, the three key cards you add in for that specific matchup. But it just muddles everything up. It really, you just have sideboard the deck. <laughs> yeah, seriously. You have like like you can't, you know, wishboard into everything. Like you don't have enough tutors for that just yet. So definitely avoid that. I mostly agree. <laughs> so many of these feel like they both improve your consistency in some ways and hurt it in others. Mm -hmm. Like it's true that you can't have a plan for every matchup. You have to choose if you want your deck to be consistent. Except now you're rolling for who you get paired up against in the tournament. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're like, well, I have a plan for Dromai, let's cross our fingers and hope that I be paired against Dromai and not the matchup that I didn't tech for. Well, I wanna, I wanna respond to that and say, there is building for your game plan and yeah. building for others' game plan. Mm. But it's if a game you, where you have to fight against other, other opponents, you know? Yes, you, there's always going to be some of it, but I would still say, Focusing on your game plan is going to make you more consistent than focusing on others' game plan. Probably, yeah. And so saying, what is the most optimal version of my deck mm -hmm. is not going to be a bunch of sideboard cards yeah, sure. into all these different matchups. And I totally agree with the message that, like, focus on your game plan. How much can you deviate? How much can you afford to deviate before your deck starts getting whack? Yeah, if so, you have a 40-card main board and a 30-card sideboard... Something is wrong. Mm -hmm. Go back to the drawing board. <laughs> I will follow up with two points and then we'll move on to variances. Mm -hmm. So number one, there are certain matchups or certain decks in the metagame that will always take up sideboard space. For instance, any deck that has Phantasm, you're mm -hmm. going to run like maybe three Need to have six power cards. Yeah, three to six cards uh, to deal specifically with Auras or allies or phantasm. One of those three, you're gonna have some cards of those. Just don't make it like so much that you're just having these like big chunky six powers that mess up the rest of your turns. Mm -hmm. Secondly, there are some matchups that are so bad that no matter how much teching you do, it's gonna suck no matter what. So you might as well just like Clark said, make your deck as optimized as possible and try your best and see if you can stick to your explosiveness of your main deck and blow over the traditionally bad matchup or whatever. Once again, there's that high variance actually being valuable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. With that being said, Clark, would you like to take us into our Arsenal Zone? Sure. So our Arsenal Zone is the section of our podcast where we like to shout out cards that we've been thinking about, maybe playing a lot, brewing with, or just have an appreciation for. And I'm going to talk about a card that I have a brand new appreciation for. We've mentioned on this podcast how we aren't the happiest with the storytelling in Flesh and Blood cards, um, especially when compared to Magic the Gathering, which I think is the gold standard for storytelling in, in trading card games. I want to talk about a card that I think does a much better job of this, and I want to acknowledge that I think that Legend Story Studios is getting better at this. Visit the Imperial Forge. Visit the Imperial Forge is not a good card. It gives your sword and dagger attacks piercing. It's rainbow, three, two, one. And it blocks for three, and it has go again. It costs nothing. You're spending a card to give yourself value if they block with equipment, and you're also doing it before the attack, so they get to then make the choice of whether or not they block with equipment and even give you value for that card. Like, it's not a great card. But when you look at this card, like, really look at the card, I think it's incredible. I think there's so much storytelling happening here. And I know at first glance you're like, no, it isn't, because it's a guy working on the forge. But, like, look at what the forge is made of. Look at what the background is. Look at how there's running lava. And then read the flavor text. The sharpest blades of Wraith are forged within molten rivers that flow through the heart of Mount Volcor. The Imperial Forge is in Mount Volcor. It's telling you where something is. It's showing you the type of people that work in this forge, common average citizens in the world of Wraith. 
it's showing you also the kind of weapons that they make. Yes, you see the sword there, but you also see glaives. You see hilts. You see people working in the background. You can imagine what it's like to be here. You can see the sparks flying off of the sword. There is some action in this, as well as a lot of environmental storytelling. There's like even a little chain hanging down from the ceiling in the upper left over by the pitch stack. And those are the little details I think people can miss a lot of when they're looking at these cards. But I think that this is good world building on a card. Is it great? No, but it's definitely a step in the right direction. I love to see that Legend Story Studios is doing more of this rather than just showing character doing an action, character doing an action, character doing an action. With the whole lore of Flesh and Blood being a fight between two heroes who encounter each other, there's a tendency for, I think, for a lot of cards to look like that. And I think it's very boring. This is way more interesting to me. This tells more of a story to me. And so I, I like it. I really like this card. I completely agree because when I first saw that card in, I think it's Everfest, right? Dynasty. Uh, Dynasty. Dynasty. I thought it sucked. I'm like, wow, okay. Another card that Warrior can't play, move, uh, move to the next. So you seeing that wor world building aspect of it is exactly the change in mindset that we I'd like to see more of in LSS's design mm -hmm. um, and not reserving these bad cards for storytelling. Yeah. For my card shout out today, I want to talk about a card that I don't think is very good. I don't even know if it'll ever be good, and that's Tome of AO. <laughs> <laughs> Tome of AO is a blue majestic from Dynasty. It says at the beginning of your action phase, destroy Tome of AO and then draw a card. It has Ward 1. It does not have Go again. It costs one resource. So it's kind of like a really long term ponder token that you can't plan around. It costs a card and a resource. It only blocks for two. Wait, at end of turn? At the beginning of your action phase. At the beginning of your action phase, that's better than ponder. You're right, because it allows you to like have a six card hand. And I suppose that's not bad, but if you take any damage, this card goes away because that has ward one. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can stack it with your other ward effects to make it like you get rid of your other ward effects first. Like, I just don't quite understand how you're preserving this card and keeping it up. Maybe it's supposed to synergize with like other cards. Like, isn't there like a kimono that like gives you extra spectral shields or something if mm -hmm. your yeah. wards go away? Celestial kimono. But is this good enough to warrant paying a resource and your action point in order to drop this aura down? Well, you see, I think that's the thing, Fuzzy. I think that this card is designed for, because what class is it for? Illusionist. Yeah, I think this is for an illusionist build that just nobody's running right now. I just have a hard time seeing this card ever being good. And you know, I love tomes. It says draw a card on it, I'm there. <laughs> well, F Fuzzy, here's here's where it's good. And it, it may seem weird, but like I've, I have I have thrown this in a brew or two. I've been okay, doing, okay. I'm I'm ready. doing a lot of brewing. If you throw a bunch of go-again attacks to strip all the cards from their hand, okay. then you play this at the end of your chain, and you start your next turn with a five, maybe six-card hand, that is what it is for. Now, we don't think of Illusionist as the deck that does that, so we don't see this card being very good, but I think it's surprisingly good. I think you can also... If you can do some action point shenanigans with lead the charge, okay. you can end up, I know, I know, but red and yellow lead the charge both trigger on this to give you an action point. And you can then chain it into throwing something like uh, Miraging Phantasm, where if they destroy it, if they pop it, you get to create a copy of this. Mm. Okay. There, there are worlds where this is playable. Is it good? <laughs> no. I'm skeptical. You could call me a non-believer. Tom of Ayo, I like your name. <laughs> I like saying Ayo. <laughs> <laughs> but I brought two copies to sign and give to you two. You know so what? You Thanks for giving me a copy, Fuzzy, because I like this So you card. can each own a copy of Tom of Ayo. Here you go, you two. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Fuzzy. 
I can't wait to put this in and I can beat you with it and then be like, ha, 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 ha. My fuzzy I'd be binder. so impressed. My fuzzy card binder is slowly growing. <laughs> what about you, Joel? So I already talked about it a little bit and I'm going to talk about it some more. I'm shouting out the original four tutors for the Welcome to Wraith Heroes, uh, being Sand Sketch Plan, Showtime, Singing Steel Blade, and Mugenshi Release. Because tutors are so strong in other card games, it really makes me excited that they were included. Now, there, so the first 10 heroes of the game got them. The Welcome to Wraith Heroes, the Arcane Rising Heroes, and Bolton and Leviah all got one. And then we kind of stopped seeing them. You know, actually, I've noticed something. It's when they brought in talents. Yeah, like the larger a card pool a hero has, like maybe they need less support in a way, or maybe they decided that these searchable effects are really powerful. But either way, I'd like to see more of them. I think it's a really good way of expressing more of a personality with these heroes and their play style. Uh, they're all very tuned, and none of them are outrageously powerful. It's just really good consistency pieces especially with Leviathan and Bolton, like they've, they're like a necessary evil. Like Beacon of Victory is like really good. Shadow of Blasphemy being really like mid and the original, like they can go into any build with these heroes and just be really solid cards. Mm -hmm. So this design, I really like it. I want to see more of it in future sets. Just wanted to shout it out. Yeah. Tutors are great. I think it makes sense that they're printed in the first couple sets, especially because the card pool was so low, right? Mm. You mm. want the tutors in order to help you have a more consistent deck when you're working with a far less card pool. That's a great point. Which is why I'm not sure we'll see a lot of tutors in the future, but I would be really excited. Tutors get more and more powerful the more things that you have to search with. That's yeah. true. I don't think they'll or ever search for. be banned because of their silo design, but I would like to see... Like more of them as specializations. Yeah, like yeah. Mugenshi release only finds Lord of Wind. It mm -hmm. did kind of mm -hmm. get a little bit stronger because of the Surging Strike line having like a new branch, kind of. Mm -hmm. All right, with that, we're going to close out our episode. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week. Okay, bye. Have a great one. Pitch It To Me podcast is hosted by Fuzzy Delp, Clark Moore, and Joel Racinos. Executive producer, Talon Stradley. Logistics coordinator, John Farkas. Music by Dylan Holtz. Logo by Han V. Sound mixing, Christopher Moore. Last but not least, you. Thank you for listening. Please give us a follow on your favorite social media platform at Pitch It To Me Podcast. So I want you to imagine that, and you as the audience can play along here, I have three doors, A, B, and C. I've hidden the keys to a shiny new car in one of these three doors. I've even picked a letter, okay? So I am imagining one of these doors as having the key, okay? Behind the other two doors are useless donkeys. <laughs> you don't want a donkey. That's a lot of responsibility. You want keys to a shiny new car. Joel... Can you pick one of these three doors? Uh, Just say it out loud. A. Awesome. I can tell you, Joel, that I did not pick C to have the keys. I'm, I'm, I'm opening door C, and it has a donkey. Okay? Okay. Now, I will give you the chance to switch your answer to door B, knowing that there is a donkey in door C. Do you hold with A? Or do you swap to B? Yeah. Do you think you were correct the first time? Or do you think you have maybe a better chance if you switch doors to door B? Uh, good question. I don't know if it changes a whole lot because there's still a donkey. And so it's a 50-50. So I'd rather stick with my original, right? It's and that's the paradox. So be I will tell you just for the sake of the thought experiment. Okay. I had chosen door A. So in this case, switching would have led you to another donkey. But uh -huh. the chances, if we ex played this experiment out many times, the chances are actually not 50-50 anymore. And that's because if I always reveal a door with a donkey, 
then it consolidates the probabilities. So if you pick door A, you have a one third chance sure. of being correct, right? Mm -hmm. But if I say I will always reveal a door with a donkey, then like, let's say there was a donkey. Let's go back a little bit and say that there was the keys in the car was in door C and you had still picked A, I would have revealed B, right? Right. So if I'm always revealing a door with a donkey, one of the wrong answers, and you had a one third before, it kind of means that like, if the keys were in any door other than the one that you picked, then the only door that's left for you to switch to will be one with the car. And since you have a one third chance of being correct at the beginning, it means you have a two thirds chance of the only remaining door having keys. That's my best explanation for the multi-hall problem. Yeah. And again, we are people who like have had to explain probabilities <laughs> before and we're still not great at it, right? Like probability is just so hard to understand. What? So it's 66%? Yeah. If you switch, you have a 60, you have a two thirds chance of getting the prize. And if you stay, it ends up being one third. Really? Yeah. Not 50-50, which is what everyone would think. 50-50 is such a natural instinct. You're like, okay, you got rid of one of the chances. Now there's two 50-50. I'm kind of bummed because now I know I'm like thinking like the rest of people. But that makes <laughs> a lot of sense. And it's also well, very it's intriguing. it's super logical to think of it as a 50-50. Um, I would say that the most logical way that it's been explained to me is that your first selection has a two-thirds chance of being wrong. So why wouldn't you want to switch the moment that you're given a chance? I think it's kind of interesting too because the core of the problem is the whoever is controlling like what doors are opened is making an influence on the probability, right? Like yeah. he's opening the wrong door and kind of influencing your decision there. Yep. Right? Instead of it yes. being like a one in three or 50 50. Mm -hmm. That's why it's not 50 50, right? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Because we'll never reveal the correct door that you didn't pick. Got mm -hmm. it. Now, that doesn't have a direct relationship to flesh and blood other than, hey, probability is fucking hard to understand. Yeah. I'm certainly confused. Yeah. <laughs>